Welcome to the Snaphook Podcast. I'm Jeremy Freeman. And I am Mike Bartels. And this is episode two. We have our first real interview, but how's your week been going? Week's been going good. Yeah, second episode, first interview, incredible guests, right? I mean, Matt Han's a buddy. Super excited to dive into that, but the week's been good. We uh, moved to St. Louis last week for work, the real job, and did a little stuff in the city, but getting out to play some golf on my mandatory midweek golf. And, you know, I'm pretty excited to take the camera out and just kind of dork around and get that handicap down. What about you? Had a, you had a pretty solid week of travel there, huh? I had a big week. A good friend of mine lives in Kansas City, had a tea time at Landman. And with my new open schedule, he's like, if you get here, we're taken care of. So flew into Kansas City. My buddy Will picked me up and we drove up to Nebraska and saw this ridiculous Rob Collins design. For anyone who's been to Sweeten's Cove, it was like Sweeten's Cove just 10 times bigger. Green's bigger than I've ever seen in my life. At one point, I had a 40-yard putt. But yeah, it was great. I had the camera out, of course, the whole time. Taking a bunch of photos. I'm going to post those soon. The only issue was it was so windy, the drone stayed on the ground because there were 40-mile-per-hour gusts, and I was not going to risk it. Yeah, as in the drone goes up and then sideways. Yeah, exactly. It was a great time, though, and like I played well, which is always good. You know, when you go to those courses, you want to get off your bucket list, you want to at least have a good round. Yep. And that came together. And also, we got a quick emergency nine in, because I've never been to South Dakota, and I think there's only two or three states I haven't been to at this point. And we realized our hotel in Iowa was... 10 minutes away from South Dakota and there was a course right across the border. So the night we drove in, we got an emergency nine end for sunset. Uh, hold on. So you flew into Kansas City on the Missouri side. Yep. You then went to the Kansas side. Then you went to Nebraska to play Landman. And then you were staying in Iowa? Yeah. And then so, you went to South Dakota? Yep. Hit them all. Because basically the drive from Kansas City up to where Homer and Landman is goes directly north along the border of Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas. And Sioux City is the closest big city to, big city in air quotes, to <laughs> Homer, Nebraska, 20 minutes away. But that is also where South Dakota comes down. They all come together in one corner. What? I didn't realize that until we were driving up there. And I looked at the map. I was like, I mean, we have to do this. We, yeah. Like we have yeah. to. Then we played back in Kansas the next day. So I played golf in Nebraska, South Dakota, and Kansas all in a two-day period. That's incredible. Yeah. That is absolutely incredible. What was it like when you're out there taking photos at Landman? Because you're saying that it's so big. Like, did you ever struggle with kind of capturing the size of it all? I mean, you sent me some of your pics and... They were, they were awesome, but from like a landscaping standpoint, like, it, you know, if it's huge, like what, what was your thought process going into how do I capture the size of all this? It was hard to figure out because some of the greens were so massive. And after we played, they were nice enough to let me go back out and go over the first few holes while the light was nice and take a few extra shots. But you almost couldn't get, like normally I would compress it a little bit, but then if you use a longer lens and compress it, the greens are so big, you couldn't even get the whole green in some of the shots. That's wild. But I also took out my panoramic film camera and ran three rolls of film through that. 
which oh. I'm going to go drop off today. And I'm hoping some of those turned out well. Even Rob, who I message with occasionally, and I've done some of those photos at Sweden's before. He's like, I'm excited to see those. Yeah, I'm very excited to see those. Do you have the ability to post those with them being filmed? Like, how do you do that? Yeah, I have to go and get it developed and scan them in. And it takes a little time. It'll probably take me a week, realistically, to get them back. If I wanted to rush, I could drop them off today, depending if they're running that type of film, because I did transparency film. Mm. So sometimes it takes a little more time with it, because they're very specific. I mean, the negative is six inches long. It's huge for each frame. That's crazy. And I'm assuming you're not dropping these off at Walgreens or CVS to have them develop. No, I have a friend that I went to college with here in Atlanta, and he started his own company doing it. That's awesome. And then since then, there's two other places in Atlanta that have started developing film. But even when I drop this type off, I have to explain to him, like, don't cut anything. Because if you, if they just like pull it out and not pay attention, they could cut through the negative because it is so specific. Mm-hmm. Like That's a really normal, cool. a normal roll of 120 film, you would get 12 or 16 shots. And this one, you get four. Oh. So it really limits the number of frames you get, which then of course means it costs a lot more per shot. Well, it, yes, costs a lot more per shot. And then ensuring that your shot is good. I mean, that's one bad shot and you're down to three good photos. Yeah, you take your time with this camera. You don't just bust it out and you wait till the light's right. Like when I played, I was paying attention to the course, knowing that I was going to go back out and shoot a few with it. Yeah. And and like saw some spots that I knew lighting wise would look good. What's the camera that you put the film in? It's a Fuji GX617. It's the most absurd looking camera. We'll post it in the notes so people can see it. It is this very specific camera that Fuji made before digital, and it's really hard to find now, but it's a really cool looking camera. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be sure to post that in the show notes so people can check it out. Love it. I recently purchased, I made a a snap purchase here recently, JP Ackman, Paul Ackman from TaylorMade. He posted a picture of one of those, it's called a camp camera, and it's basically a digital, like disposable camera. Obviously, you don't throw it away, you keep it, but no screen, has an SD card in it that you pull out and you download it, but you know it's got 200 shots per SD card and no screen, so you kind of just blind to see what happens. So 50 bucks, camp camera, super excited to see what's going on with it. I think you should get one. Absolutely. And I think we should figure out a way to like, once we do get listeners, have them get them and do kind of a quote unquote Polaroid or a disposable camera contest and maybe give away some cool stuff once we get there. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. I had seen that before because uh, a friend of mine was going to a camp where there's no electronics allowed. And that's what they designed that for originally for these kids going to summer camp, sleepaway camp, but they can't have screens. And I sent it to a friend of mine. He ended up not buying it. So I'm really glad that you got it. And I'm, I'm going to order one today. What color did you get though? So I ordered the yellow one and it arrived. And my girlfriend was like, oh, are yellow? And I was like, I think that's like the only color I could have got. And then I went back on the website and saw that there's multiple colors to pick from. But it gives me that nostalgic feeling of having a old school disposable camera. Exactly. It looks like an old Kodak. And I think that's the goal. Yep. Well, let's get into the interview. Uh, We had a great conversation with Matt. It was really fascinating to hear his background and how quickly he's come up in the world. And obviously, you and him are buddies. 
I know him pretty well, but I learned so much and his, especially his background of finance, which is something you never hear from a creative in this industry. And people will be fascinated to hear how he has spreadsheets and plans money and does all this stuff to be successful, which mm -hmm. more people need to do that. I was taking notes and want his spreadsheet because I need to be better at that going forward. Yeah, you're right. I've known Matt for a couple of years. It's funny that we talked about how we all met at the same place of The Ringer 2 at Sweetens. And I didn't know some of the stuff about Matt that he was talking about. I kind of just thought he started this at The Ringer when he was taking photos and got picked up there. I didn't realize his background of like what he was doing, you know, up to that point and how involved in photography and videography and editing he was to that point. Uh, yeah, it was incredibly fascinating. I, I haven't talked to many other freelancers, but I feel like Matt is the COO of Matt Hahn Incorporated, right? I mean, like he is running his business like so precisely and the things he's thinking about forward thinking. I mean, yeah, it was just incredible to talk to him and listen to him and talk about the actual photography part of it all as well. And the drone stuff. I mean, the, the guy's awesome. He's, he's such a stand-up guy too. Yeah, trust me, the business aspect when I ask him one or two questions that I know most people struggle with and he had the exact answer and he's only been doing this for a few years, mm -hmm. I was blown away and I'm like, yes, more people need to do that. So I thank you. If you are a freelance photographer, you're going to learn a lot from this, from the business side. And on top of that, his creative is so incredible, especially the drone stuff, mm -hmm. that it's such a good combination of the two together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's really a deadly weapon and and you're right. A year and a half, two years, I think maybe three years at this point. I mean, I told him, dude's a rocket ship. Like, he's just taken off and kind of like, I feel like put himself in this top tier of golf photographers in that space. And people are hitting him up. A lot of companies want to do business with him because the guy's good. I completely agree. All right. With all that being said, here's our interview with Matt Hunt. All right. Welcome to the first interview episode of Snaphook. We are here with a good buddy, Matt Hahn. Matt is an incredible photographer if you don't know him. He has worked with incredible partners like the USGA, Flyers Club, Zero Restriction, Dormy Network, the PGA, the Golfer's Journal. Who else knows where this guy is at? He's a self-proclaimed golfaholic who just so happens to be a freelance photographer who is based in Dallas, Texas. So we are super excited to have you on, Matt. I've been talking to you about this for a while. Jeremy jumped onto the pod, and we're going to go through this with you for the first time. So welcome to Snapbook. Thanks for having me. This is, this is exciting to be a part of it. You guys got a cool brand name going, cool thing going here with highlighting some people in the industry. So happy to take some time and chat with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're super excited because, and I'll let Jeremy chime in too, there's so many incredible photographers doing awesome things that have such unique stories that don't even tie to their ethos and being a photographer. You and I have had multiple conversations off the record about it, but let's start there. You played golf in college, right? But did you go to school to be a photographer? I ended up in photography by accident. I like to say that I ended up in this job completely by accident with what I'm doing today. So I was a finance guy in college, have the business background. I was at University of Delaware, did my full undergrad there, graduated with an honors finance degree. And when I left college, I ended up at Topgolf 
if I would not have ended up with the top golf job, would have probably be in Manhattan doing some sort of private equity valuation or banking right now. So the top golf role, which is a whole story behind that, and two, how I ended up there, that helped get me on this path that ultimately led to me finding this golf photography role. So what was the role at Top Golf? I did revenue generating programs, cost savings initiatives, and also managed pretty much anything related to golf for the brand. I had our day to day relationship with Callaway. I did everything from designing the golf clubs that went into the bays. We did an overhaul of the top golf clubs that are in those dispensaries when you walk in there in the venues. So that was something that I got to work with Callaway's engineering team on, which was a lot of fun. So it was go from crazy offset and forgiveness and things of that nature to something that was a little more player friendly. So something that people like us walked in, we'd look down and be like, all right, this isn't disgusting. Uh, we can be <laughs> happy with what we're swinging because everybody else just doesn't really know any better. So that was kind of one of my fun projects. Bought a bunch of golf clubs from them for our platinum membership. In the weeds with Callaway a bunch. I got to do some work on the merger. I went top golf and Callaway merged as I was on my way out. But also for my last eight to 12 months there, ran golf instruction for the brand. Had 60 PGA pros that dotted lined into me. They reported to their managers in the venues, but I was the program head before I left Topgolf, but got to do a lot of really fun stuff. I had a lot of responsibility, helped build the retail program when I started there, which was an interesting experience to work with vendors like Under Armour and Travis Matthew and all types of things like that. Basically putting t-shirts, polos, hats, things of that nature in the lobby of the venues and then progressed into the golf programming and the strategic initiatives as my career progressed there. And all the while, you know, started shooting on the side. That's a lot. I didn't realize you were, you're basically top golf. Do you have a lifetime membership there? My associate membership might still be active, <laughs> but it, it feels like I, I do because I still have a lot of really great connections over there. Occasionally even still do some work for the brand, which is cool. So I headed out to their Vegas location, in November, I'm going to do some drone fly-throughs and things like that with them. If I wouldn't have had the opportunity to go out and branch on my own, probably a pretty good chance that I'd still be with them because I did really enjoy my time there. I got to do a lot of really fun stuff. It was a, it was a great role. So what was that leap like going from a steady paycheck insurance, that corporate life to being a freelance photographer. I'm sure that your background in finance has kind of helped you mold a good platform of managing all of that. But from what I've understood, freelance life is a, a little stressful because you could have steady work and then you could not have anything for a while. So was that a scary jump for you to go from cush to uncomfortable? It's a yes and no. With me being a numbers guy, I was very on top of what did I need to do to make it be successful, breaking that down to what that looked like in terms of how many projects is it a month, how many, how many projects is it a week? Just making it very tangible goals and things that I could wrap my head around as I was getting started. But I guess the thing I had to do is like back it up to give you guys the context is 2019 is when I started getting paid to shoot. I have to give the ringer, Zach Blair's event, a little bit of credit for launching part of my photography career, launching a large part of it really. I went to the one in 2019, I got into the ringer just via social media lottery, got paired with a guy by the name of Dave Plaster. At the time, he was the CMO of the Dormy Network. Ben Peters, I think, was also in that group too, the Golf Hawk, if you guys are familiar with him. So we're playing and I've got the camera with me. At that point, I would take it with me when I traveled for fun. Just love to shoot. That came from 
uh, started shooting mostly in college around club golf and had different roles and things with that. But I'm shooting at the ringer, put a bunch of stuff together, edit it. Dave's like, hey, I would love to see your images when you're done because that's one of their courses. It was at Dormy Club. So I send him a Dropbox and he goes, hey, have you ever thought about getting paid for this? And I was like, is is that a thing? Is that something that people do? I had no clue at that point. I mean, obviously it's something that people do, but he was like, yeah, you should really think about this. We'd love to have you come shoot for us. And it might be something that you want to think about down the road. And that was what started it. So I started shooting for Dormy Network. They were my first client, if you will, first paying client. I went down to Briggs Ranch in San Antonio and shot around an event for them. And now at this point, they're they're one of my biggest clients on a regular basis. I do a lot of lifestyle club experience type of stuff for them when they're hosting their events. But I started getting paid late 2019. And then in 2020, with COVID happening, that's what basically sped up everything for me. Got put on furlough from Topgolf for three months during COVID because the whole business basically shut down. They laid off, I want to say it was about 50% of the corporate office. Pretty much everybody else got furloughed. I was part of that furlough crew, luckily. But while I was sitting around playing golf, I played like 1,400 holes of golf in three months. That was pretty crazy. I uh, did a couple wild trips. Looking back at it, drove to Pinehurst and quarantined at Pinehurst for a week from Dallas. Got on a plane and went to Bandon in May of 2020 with a Golfers Journal trip that was scheduled before COVID and then canceled and then put back on. So ran around during 2020 a little bit because I lived by myself here in Dallas in an apartment at that point. But basically during that time, Started to get paid for more shooting. Connected with the PGA of America. Uh, knew some people loosely, tangentially from my Top Golf relationships. And they were starting to build Frisco here in Dallas, the new headquarters. And reached out to one of the guys that I had met just briefly at a PGA championship and was like, hey, you know, who's who's shooting Frisco? Or like, what are you guys doing content-wise for it? Like, we'd love to see if I could document some of the construction for you guys. I've got nothing else going on. Hanging out in Dallas playing basically golfing my face off because there's nothing else to do. Uh, it helps that it's nearby so you can just roll over whenever, especially for construction because it's always going on. Exactly. So it's like a 35-minute drive up the tollway from me here in Dallas. They were like, hey, that's a really good idea. We should probably be documenting this. They, they signed me up to go out and shoot some construction. I think I started, it was June of 2020 shooting Frisco. I did a summer shoot in 2020, a fall shoot in 2020, and then a spring shoot in 21. My first two paying clients were at Dormy Network and PGA of America. So I was like, okay, this is a little bit of a hot start. It's a good start. I kind of locked my way into, into that one a little bit, but that helped get it going. And so Dormy kept coming back to me for projects. I started to do more work with the PGA. I started to realize kind of end of 2020, beginning of 2021, that oh, this is something that maybe could happen. It was just starting to become an idea that I was kicking around with friends. And I remember 2021, I'm sitting in St. Simon's Island in January. My buddies and I, we were kind of on the run during the whole COVID thing. We took advantage of the, the work from home and rented Airbnbs and did some fun stuff. And we spent a month in St. Simon's, a, a buddy and I. And I was down there still working for Top Golf Remote, but occasionally working on this photography thing and continuing to book jobs and do different things. I went over to Mexico with Golfer's Journal and shot one of their events. Things just started to progress. And it got to the point where, you know, I think it was like April of 2021, where I could look at like the next, call it eight months. And it was like, all right, here's where my top golf salary is at. I know what I need to do to match that. I put the numbers together in a spreadsheet. It was like, I know what I need to make to kind of just get by. Um, I know what the bare minimum number is. And I know I'm already past that. I can see the runway for the next six to eight months. 
So at that point, it was just getting the nerve up to actually take the jump and go do it. Basically, I put my two months in, and not two weeks, I did two months with Top Golf because they were nice enough. I went to them and it caught them off guard, I think, with me leaving, but they were nice enough to let me do two months. So I continued to work for them to help them ease the transition because there was a lot of tribal knowledge. I did a lot of different things, wore a lot of different hats there. So they let me hang around, continue to help them ease the transition but also go and do any of the jobs that I had booked for the rest of that time period. So I think it was mid-April 21, I put in the time and I finished my last day at Top Golf was June of 2021. But at that point I had the runway set up for the rest of the year. So I knew that 21 would be a success. The part to me that was scary was as soon as that calendar turned to January 1st, 2022, that was a completely blank slate. And all right, and now we got to figure it all out. It's interesting, someone that's coming from a financial world, because so many people who get into this never look at it that way. It's a very unique scenario that you're looking at it on a spreadsheet. And I imagine so many photographers haven't even thought of a spreadsheet. They're just like, oh, I'm going to go get jobs and figure it out and buy a new camera and buy a new drone with that money. It's really smart. So did the people at Topgolf know that you were shooting stuff also before you put that time in? Yeah, I think they had an idea. I mean, at that point, I was posting stuff on Instagram. The Top Golf travels kind of helped me along the way because I got to travel with them a lot. At that point, I was probably flying, before COVID hit, I was flying somewhere between like 50 and 70 times a year with Top Golf. I was doing stuff like I ran Top Golf Tour. If you guys ever saw any of that, it was two person competitions in each market. If you won your market, you go to Vegas, you compete for 50 grand. So, I got to travel around, do a bunch of that stuff. I would occasionally shoot some of that stuff. Our marketing team guys, some of them love me because they'd be always looking for social content. I'd be like, hey, how about these images I shot? And they'd be like, where did this come from? Uh, (laughs) I even did that one time. It's funny, there's still images that I took when I was an associate on the website for some of the different venues. One of my cooler projects I got to do at Top Golf was build mini golf course. And mini golf courses probably doesn't do it justice. They're they're putting courses. They're full artificial turf putting courses. They were a ton of fun, really cool projects. There's one in Richmond and one in Jacksonville that I did. And when I say I did, it's a team. It was a big team of us, the construction team, project managers, things like that. We were kind of the ideation behind it, but I shot some of the images of those courses and some of that stuff, and it's still sitting on the website. Uh, today. And I actually did some architectural images for a venue opening in, I believe it was Orlando when I was headed to towards St. Simon's uh, during that like whole COVID adventure. So kind of funny to look back at some of that. Marketing departments love getting free content. That's always a bonus for them. Yeah. They have no idea what those images are worth nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the roller coaster. I mean, you're talking about a year and a half, Matt, like you're a rocket ship. You just went off. It seems like a big term, but yeah, I mean, it, it happened quick. It's been pretty cool and it continues to roll, which I'm obviously grateful for. It's been a fun ride, but I think I, w- I was pretty calculated with it from the start. Like you said, the spreadsheet thing, you guys would laugh. I could pull up, I have a project tracker spreadsheet. Any project that is definite, book, signed, sealed, delivered, anything that's completed, anything that is, you know, tentative. And then I have other categories where, you know, I call it stretch or if it's just kind of speculation. It's all in there and I can see what it is by month, by category. It basically is like life budget for me. I can see what the business is going to have coming in at the top. I know what the business expenses are. Like it, it's all in there. So for me, it's just how I conceptualize it. Cause at the end of the day, it's fun. It's really cool. It's something that I wanted to go do. And it gives me a really cool different lifestyle compared to a normal nine to five corporate job, but mm-hmm. You still got to make the numbers work at the end of the day. So that's the part that I'm super cognizant and on top of. And I think that's what helped me get to the point where I'm at quicker is 
if there's something that I see most creatives maybe need help with, it's the numbers side. And I'm kind of the numbers guy that backed his way into ending up with a camera in his hands. Whereas a lot of these other shooters are trying to go the other way around. And it's a hard thing to do if you don't have that sort of education, or that sort of background. So I think that's something that's given me a little bit of an advantage when I'm submitting proposals or submitting estimates or projects, briefs or things like that with different clients. I know the, the business side and the numbers side of it that they're looking for. And it just, I think, helps me that much more. Oh, let me be very clear. I'm going to get that spreadsheet from you because I'm <laughs> going into freelance now myself and my ADHD brain will not work well <laughs> on on numbers. So that's awesome. I'm curious, when did you first pick up a camera? Was it when you were young? Was it early on? Did someone inspire you to do it? Where did you really start taking yeah, good question. So I got to give my brother a lot of credit for that. It's funny. I look back at some of these pictures. We were talking about this. I forget what it was that got us talking about this, but we started with GoPros. I, I was a baseball player all through high school, double roster, junior legion, legion, burn out of baseball because of that and caught the golf bug bad into my junior year of high school. I only played in maybe a third of the matches my junior year to dropping 20 to 25 strokes off my average between junior and senior year and playing as one or two man. And a lot of it was because we played year-round frozen greens, all types of stuff up there in Pennsylvania. But we were nuts. Like, I remember playing in the team matches on weekends, every weekend with the old guys. At the point when I started there, some of them were in their 80s, creeping up on 90. And I'm hitting it a million yards past them, and they're still beating me. So you learn pretty quick. But every time. We're this kind of... <laughs> but they chip so well, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, chip or putt or do all types of unique plays. That they just know how to get the ball in the hole is what it comes down to. Yep. Where this comes into me and the shooting and how I got started, I got a set of clubs. I think it was that Christmas. And that same Christmas, my brother got a GoPro. And the GoPro is where we started playing with photography. And I say we because we went to, uh, it's so funny, if you go on my YouTube, which I don't do YouTube. It's just out there. It exists. There's a YouTube video. It was selected as GoPro's video of the day. And this is a long time ago. There's this local go-kart track nearby where we grew up. And we took the GoPros, you know, suction cupped them to the carts and made this edit from this go-kart place. And that was kind of, if you point to early content days for me, that was kind of the start. So we got hooked on the GoPro scene. So made that video, even had this random dude from Chile hit me up on YouTube be like, hey, can we send you this footage? We want you to edit it. We think GoPro would love it. All right, like this has got to be like some sort of a scam where I'm going to download like all types of bad stuff to like the computer here at my parents' house. So here I get this footage. We're like, let's try it. And it's these guys doing these crazy longboard sessions down the side of mountains in Chile on these highways. So edited that video, put it up, and it was like another GoPro video of the day. And it's got a couple hundred thousand views on YouTube. It's like, this is my early content days and I barely knew anything at this point. So that stuff's there. The GoPros are what got it started. Went to college, still was dabbling with the GoPro stuff. What really got me started with shooting, I ended up being the president of the club team in Delaware during my time at school. We had like 150 people in our club program. It was one of the biggest in the country. It was co-ed. We had a tournament team that would travel to different events every semester, but then everybody else, they paid their dues and got access to a local course. So part of the reason it was so big is we spent a lot of time working on social and promoting the club and doing all types of stuff to like get the awareness out. Hey, you could pay 50 bucks and go play golf for the semester was basically what the deal was. And a lot of that, we take the GoPros out and we'd mess around with the GoPros on course. And that's what we helped do social with. So that's how I started shooting a lot of the golf stuff was with a GoPro, got a drone 
maybe my sophomore year of college. It was the DJI, the Phantom 2. And it's when you still have to put the GoPro in the gimbal on the drone. And my first drone flight was on the quad at Delaware. Bought it for 500 bucks off eBay. Ended up selling it for the same price I got it for on eBay and then bought a Phantom 4. And that was the first call, like real drone I had. But that's what started me shooting. The club team position and the size of the club we had helped eventually get me a position as the national president for club golf. So I was club golf president for the country for a year, which was cool. But when I started to go to those events, a lot of what I did for the national body was content and even some graphic design stuff. Like they had just kind of taught myself illustrator would do the banners and posters and stuff like that for the events, but did a lot of social images and stuff along those lines with do course stuff for national championships beforehand, just to build hype and awareness around it a little bit. When I started doing some of those national championships, it was like, all right, should have like a, a regular camera with. And again, my brother plays a part in this. He had gotten, I think it was like a 70D or something like that for Christmas. And I was like, hey, this is, this is a lot nicer to shoot golf with than a GoPro. Like I don't have <laughs> right on top of the person to shoot. So ended up following his in his footsteps, got a camera myself, started shooting with that. And that's really what started me with a DSLR in my hands. That's really what started it. And that's what carried in top golf. That's what carried through the travels. And I started to add some better lenses out of 70 to 200. And that was where it clicked. And it was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is kind of it. My God, man, you're setting the bar as far as guests go right now of being an onion that's being peeled back and back and back. I've known you for a couple of years now, but I didn't know all this stuff. This is incredible. Yeah, it's a wild journey to, to how it got there. And anyway, you know, when you sit here and look at this and, and think about it, but we could even go at like the top golf story of how I got my job there is even a funny story too. Oh, let's hear it. I need to know. It, it also relates to content, believe it or not. My dad likes to say I got my top golf job with a video and I ended up leaving my top golf job because of a video and photo. <laughs> but basically this is between my junior and senior year of college. So summer internship, I finish up a finance internship up in the city in Manhattan. I pack up my stuff, drive home from Manhattan back to Reading area, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. There was a Twitter contest that was running for the top golf tour, which is funny because that's one of the things I ended up doing at top golf when I worked there to play as George Bryan's partner in the Top Golf Tour. They called it the Be My Bro contest because Wes Bryan had just gotten his tour card and was now not available for George for the Top Golf Tour. So I get home, take the GoPros out to the range. I set one up out on a 50 yard target and another one just up with me on the hitting area. There's nobody around. It's 7.30 PM on a summer night at local course. It's pretty much cleared out. So I do this video, talk to the GoPro, do this whole thing where it's like, you should pick me because X, Y, Z. And the last reason was like, oh, I'm a pretty good golfer myself too. Set the camera down, hit a shot. I had the GoPro on top of the target. The ball I hit one hops, hits the target, knocks the camera over, falls under the bucket, cut to black. That was the video. So end up winning the contest, go to Atlanta, play with George. We almost end up winning and going to Vegas. Didn't get it done though. We lost to some guys that were actual pro golfers. But my first boss at Topgolf was there running the contest at the time. There's YouTube videos of this. Topgolf had their whole content team there. I was mic'd up. They had cameras on us all day. You can still go find it on YouTube. It's pretty funny to see, but basically got recruited from that. And that's how I ended up at Topgolf. That's great. What? Wow. Your whole life has been content. <laughs> It's funny, it's kind of been there, you know, in the background. It is crazy. So we're covering a lot of your history, like who you are. Let's talk about being out shooting. When you're out with your buddies, or do you take photos when you're out with your buddies, or are you just done by that time with work? 
<laughs> no, I still shoot for fun. I mean, it was just at the ringer. I was out there totally on my own volition. I had the camera out. One thing I do now is instead of carrying the full rigger out with 70 to 200 or something like that, if I'm tired and I don't want to do that, I got a new little pocket camera. It's a Ricoh gr3x that thing is awesome it's smaller than an iphone in terms of if you put it up next to the phone it's smaller than the edges but obviously it's thicker but the thing takes awesome images there's some stuff delivered as client work this year that comes off of that camera and it fits in a pocket i'll just take that with for for some of the stuff now if i don't feel like carrying full camera around but still shoot with buddies yeah i love that if everybody knows anytime matt references what's he got in the bag those will all be in the show notes so people know exactly, and you don't have to DM Matt and ask him, what's your body? What's your lens? What's all this? We'll take care of that for you, Matt. Don't worry about it. So when you're out on the course, whether the drone is in the air, the FPV is in the air, you got your camera with you, what is it you're out there looking for? I, I assume you're walking, maybe. Are you in a car zooming around? What is it you're looking to do to be different than everybody else? Feel like you're not taking the same photo just at a different location, right? What's going through your mind as you're putting a shot list together? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of it depends. Um, it depends if I'm out there on a client shoot. It depends if I'm out there just kind of for fun. If I'm out there for fun, I'm just walking and the camera is more of a secondary thing than a primary thing. If I see something, then I'm going to stop and take that image. And it's funny when I do that, some of the, the shots that I take when I'm out there and it's just golf is the focus. Some of the, the frames that I think are nothing frames end up being the ones that are the best when you sit down and edit it. And some of the stuff where you're like, I want to get that shot while I'm out there or something you have in mind, it's a little more planned out. For some reason, that stuff, sometimes they're throwaways. It doesn't work out at all. Sometimes it works. But for me, it's very much a secondary thing. The reason I started shooting and got to this point was the camera went with me on a bunch of trips and travels, and it was a way for me to remember some of these places that I went. And for me, it's those moments and those different little details or scenes that you want to have burned into your memory, but it's hard to remember all that stuff. And for me now, with as much travel as I do and, and the places as I get around to, it's a great thing. But at the same time, some people talk about trips that I've been on with them and with me going to a bunch of different places. I don't remember some of these details as much <laughs> anymore because it just gets filled in. It starts to blur together. So it's nice for me. It's almost like a souvenir. People buy a bunch of stuff in a pro shop to remember trips and things like that. For me, the images serve some of that purpose of being able to take that trip home with me. Yeah, that's 100%. Hey guys, it's Jeremy here to talk about Precision Pro. Mike here. Back in the day, I did a lot of research on rangefinders, and I came to the conclusion that Precision Pro was the best option for me. I had a different brand rangefinder in my bag for the longest time until I discovered the Precision Pro NX10 Slope. I love the easy to lock on target, the lifetime battery replacement warranty, the three-year warranty, and it allows me to change my skins for my personal touch. Mine has a custom skin from when I did a 100-hole hike for youth on course at Sweetens Cove last year. That way, every time I pull it out of my bag, I'm reminded of how good that day was. So make sure you go to precisionpro.com, use code PINS20, and get yourself a new rangefinder. <music> Let's talk about the most important item in your golf bag, your glove. We here at Snaphook connected with Joe Lusa, the owner and creator of Bensky Golf Clubs, and have been wearing their gloves for the past year. As golfers, we put so much thought into our fit, it blows us away when people have old beat up or the standard big box manufacturing gloves. Benzy gloves are made of premium grade Cabretta leather at the price point that is hard to beat. Our favorite gloves are the Elephant Print 7210 and the Chapel Hill. Visit them at benzygolf.com and follow them on Instagram at benzygolf.
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, you walk up to a caddy and you hand him your bag and then you pull the camera and he looks at you like, Boo-boo. and you're like, no, I'll carry this. You carry that. I just want to capture the time that we're here. You're right. Those pictures at the end of the day mean way more than a polo or a hat or whatever it may be that you could get at a clubhouse for sure. Yeah, I mean, my phone's out of space right now. Uh, I've got like four gigs <laughs> left on the phone because it's full. It's too full and it goes way back. and it, it just continues to carry from phone to phone. So I'm going to have to go get myself a terabyte phone next time because it's going to be consistently out of space. <laughs> I, I just had to buy the bigger iCloud storage because also when you take your nicer photos and don't size them right and they get transferred over and you have these massive files over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, this is fun. This is fun. So I want to talk about, Matt, the way that you've grown with your content. I mean, you're talking about the GoPro to the camera, to the drone, and then you level up. Nicer camera, nicer lenses, nicer drones, FPV drones. You're doing it all. What's left? Do you have something in mind as far as, I want to try this next year, or this is how I want to expand my portfolio, what I can give to a customer? Yeah, that's a good question. Again, this is my business background probably coming into play with that. When I set out to do this, I looked at other people that are doing it, other people that are considered leaders in the space, other people that I just enjoy looking at their work. And and for me, it's like, there's something to be said, obviously, for specializing and really being really good at one area. And I think that's something that's important, especially in this space. But I, I viewed it this way when I was in the corporate world. I was always trying to add different skills or tools to my toolkit, if you will. I look at everything, it's like, all right, I've got this toolkit of stuff and the more skills and tools I can add to it, the more valuable I can be in a corporate space. And now on the creative side, if you can continue to add these different tools and skills, it just opens you up to more work with your clients. You can just be more valuable to each individual client. So I've taken that approach in the creative side of things and with this business, and I'm constantly on the look for what else can I add? that my end client might be looking for. And for me, it was the, the FPV thing was a recent one. I saw that starting to happen in some spaces. It had kind of touched the golf space just briefly. The Jaybird guy that's out there running around, he specializes in that's his bread and butter. But I saw an opportunity, you know, it's a high entry curve or learning curve with the FPV stuff. I have the downtime because for me, my slower time of year, at least when I started was kind of like January, February, March. And again, I, I got to give my brother some props because he seems to be the one that spurs me for a lot of this different gear stuff. He gets down rabbit holes with different gear and things and, and dives into it. And sometimes there's stuff that I'm interested in and I'll be able to ping him and be like, hey, what's the verdict on some of this stuff? And he can give me the behind the scenes and help flatten that learning curve a little bit. And the FPV was definitely one where he helped me get into it a lot quicker. And the whole reason was he had started dabbling with it before. And some of it was the original DJI kit that came out. And then that pushed him down a hole into the self-made ones. So I saw it as an opportunity, went to him, was like, hey, what would I need to do to make this work and go film stuff? So we spent January basically digging into it. He gave me some ideas to start. I spent three or four weeks in a simulator learning to fly these drones because it's a totally different dynamic than flying a regular drone. Like regular drone, you take your hands off the sticks, it stops and it hovers. These are unlimited in every axis. If you push it too far forward, it flips, you're in the ground. You push it too far to the side, it flips, you're in the ground. So it's completely learning a new skill set. So spent a bunch of time in simulators, blew a tiny one around the apartment and the whole time through, he's helping support me with tech support because some of these things are complicated. Like you got to solder, you got to do all types of stuff. It's wild. So like I said, I owe him some credit for it, but the, the FPV thing was, you know, one that I added recently and it's turned into a, a different line of the business for me that's been productive. And I think there's a runway for the FPV stuff. I think it'll eventually 
maybe run its course, its niche. It's got some great uses and some different applications, but eventually it might be kind of a fad that phases out a little bit. But, you know, I'm, I'm on the lookout for like what may be the next thing. And I haven't picked up on anything yet at this point. But for me, it's like, is there a intangible service that I can offer clients here to do something that's a little bit more of a consulting side? And again, bringing that business knowledge that I have into it. If I had to say, what are some of the other things I'm thinking about? But yeah, I mean, it's just always trying to consider what's that next tool in the kit to add. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the FPV, it's first of all the US Open one, the fly through the clubhouses. Oh, that was so good. Thank you. It's like everything about it was right. I'm curious. So the USGA and that, did they come to you or did you pitch that to them? And then how much are you balancing coming in as I'm here to shoot the FPV or I'm here to shoot the photos? Because I know you're doing a little bit of both. And I've had that at times where like, oh, can you also roll video from your Canon when the 5D came out? And that's what everyone wanted. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes to balance both of those things at a shoot because you always give something up. So how have you worked with that to always make sure you're keeping everything to a high level? Yeah, that's a good point. Good question. Good point. It depends again on the project. I think with USG, how I got there is that was a networking kind of thing that was a long time in the making. I got to meet some people around USGA that knew the right people and have to network your way. And the nice thing with me that I've found is a lot of times now you kind of get to a point where you have a little bit of critical mass, just like a snowball kind of rolling down the hill. And it almost gets to a point where every job almost turns into one or two additional, whether it's via a new connection, a new client, or, you know, just doing good work with a client, building a relationship and having them come back to you. So it gets to that point where once you get big enough, it starts to roll. But USGA was one that took me a little while to build that relationship and get that relationship. And then I think the FPV thing was something that helped me stand out in terms of being able to come in and be a part of that team. So I think I owe some of me being able to work my way into USGA to to me picking up that skill and being able to position myself as something a little different. It's like, hey, I can do the photo and video stuff, at least in my opinion, pretty well. It's like I I can hold the candle up to just about anybody else I think that you're going to put in that space from a social perspective. But also, I can bring you this. Like, hey, there's also, but wait, there's more. Uh, (laughs) So it's like, hey, I can come and do photo and video for you, but also let's go do an FPV at the clubhouse or let's go do a ball chase or something like that. And that's kind of what got me started with USGA. On other projects, there's some projects that are sold completely as FPV projects. And that helps sometimes because it's specialized, it's focused, that's what it is. The governing body stuff, like major champs and things like that, they're a different beast than any other project because it's go, go, go. This year for US Women's Open, I'm on site for 10 days. So it's just an extensive amount of time. I'm going in early and being there that long because we're going to do some of that FPV stuff before spectators are on the grounds or things like that. Like at US Open this year, we did a ball chase on 15, the par three with Bryson. And that was before spectators are on the ground, but Bryson's on the tee and here I am. And they're like, Hey, you know, don't hit our former US Open champion. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) So like, there's been some really cool moments with that FPV stuff, like flew through the Wimet house last year at Brookline and the team from the museum, they had some of Wimet's clubs, they had his medal, they had his golf ball, his scorecard, and then they had the US Open trophy. And if you go hunt that video down, they put most of that stuff up in the bedroom. That was his bedroom in the house. So I fly through the house and then it's upstairs, you have the bedroom and that's the payoff of all these different things. And they're like, hey, by the way, just like don't hit the artifacts because <laughs> they're kind of priceless. <laughs> Great. Yeah, museum <laughs> people don't mess around with their uh, artifacts. That's yeah, museum people do not mess around with it. But 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think you were going with this is like, how does it work with doing these different things? Like the other jobs, it's building it out with the client ahead of time. I think that's something that I do a good job with is we set up clear expectations before a job. Like before I go and do pretty much anything, there is a piece of paper that has, here's the price, here's the expectations, here's the deliverables. This is what we're going to create. So like we're on the same page and we talk through some of those trade-offs where it's like, hey, if you want me to do SPV in this project, it's going to take away for a little while from some of the other photos or video because I got to take time to set it up. I got to take time to test signal, do routes, do stuff like that. So it's just talking about those expectations and making sure that it fits whatever the project is to be able to make it work. Yeah, I think that's where your finance background and how buttoned up you are on things is really good because I think most creatives would be not as strict on everything. Like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll just get that after we go shoot something else. And I think that's very smart. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Thanks. It, it helps keep it together. That's for sure. <laughs> Have you ever been playing with a random or talking with somebody, telling them kind of what you do and having them bring up maybe something that you've shot in the past and then you'd be like, oh yeah, that was actually me. Like talking about going through the house. Has anybody's family said like, oh, did you see that person do that? And you're like, I was that person. Yeah, it's something that started to happen a little bit more lately, which I mean, it's it's kind of cool. It's also kind of weird to me because I don't know. For me, it's like I post pictures online. I go and shoot. Obviously, I get, to, I get a chance to go to some of these big events. But to me, I'm the guy behind the camera. I'm not the focus. I don't intend really to be the focus. Like if I want to be the focus, I'd maybe go create a YouTube channel and put myself in front of the camera. But that's not my kind of thing. So yeah, but it has started to happen. Like I've had some guys where I've been on trips or I've talked to guys and they're like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm in golf content and they're like do drone stuff and this and that and they're like oh i love when they do those videos through the locker room or like this and i'm like yeah that that was me i've had that one happen a couple times i've had it happen a couple times with a few videos that i created for different players social just either through usga or things like that where people are like oh that was cool and it's like yeah like oh you're the one that made that like yeah so that stuff is starting to pop up here and there which is again it's fun it's cool to see people get excited about stuff that you make so the benefit of it for sure well, I was curious, how have the players been? Because I know like with the FPV drones, they're loud and it's not like a normal drone. It's a little obnoxious at times. I've done something with Bryson before and he's into it and he knows that we're going to get something cool out of it. Yeah. But have you had anyone else that's been a little bit like, all right, you did that once. We're good. Not naming names. I'm just curious. Has it been any pushback? Yeah, luckily, no. Most of the, the player stuff I've done it has been this year. We did the Bryson ball chase at US Open. We were going to do one, and unfortunately it didn't work out. We were going to do one with Michelle Wee at Pebble on seven. Uh, Would have been so epic, but it was so socked in fog-wise there for the first three days I was there. Like basically we sat and twiddled our thumbs with the drone in our hand for two and a half days because you basically couldn't see the green. It was that foggy. So you can't really do a ball chase with the drone when you can't see the ball. Uh, with your own eyes. So that one is kind of a bummer. Really wanted to get that one. I have to imagine, you know, she's got a lot of obligations and things going on with her time. Like that probably would have been all like, hey, you've got two chances at this and then we're going to take what we get and run. But now, I mean, the, the Bryson one, he was super cool. A lot of the others, they've been more focused on setting rather than player. And some of that is intentional because when you're at majors, it's just hard to get those guys to pull away and be like, oh, I'm going to put some time towards this content piece for social. Matt, I'm just curious because in, in my eyes, there are like tiers of photographers within the golf space, right? And you are absolutely at the top of that top tier. 
But do you ever get any kind of imposter syndrome, whether you're scrolling through Instagram or seeing Golfer's Journal magazine and you see a photo? I mean, does that does that ever happen for you? Or are you just so dialed in with what's going on that it doesn't even cross your mind? I appreciate that. First of all, I mean, it's kind of crazy for you to, to say that to me to begin with. Obviously, I know you're a buddy and we've been at events and stuff together. But yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, last year, first time going around doing the majors, you have some moments where you're like, whoa, like, am I actually good enough at this to be here and, and do this and capture some of these moments? And I've gotten to do some really cool stuff, like be in the locker room at majors and work with some of these players and be inside the ropes. And you have your moments where it's like, all right, are these, are these images good enough? Or like, you know, where I run into it is I'll do some brand shoots from time to time. And that's a space where I'm still trying to push myself. For me, I feel like I do a lot better with the lifestyle stuff comes a lot easier to me. Cause like I started by shooting golf not necessarily shooting for a product or stuff like that. Like, I think that's something that I've picked up, like my dormy work, a lot of it is, is lifestyle. It's like on course, off course, do all different types of things. A lot of their imagery on social or whatever collateral is, is stuff that I've done now. And that's a, a space I get to use to push some of the non-golf related things for me. But some of those brand sheets that I do still to these days, like it's like I've gone out and shot with some guys that are really talented. There's a guy by the name of Paul King that I did a zero restriction shoot with. He did the stills. I did the video and just watching the way that he thinks and works, I was like, whoa, man, like, <laughs> like, how do I even begin to hold a candle or compete with that in any way, shape or form? And, and a lot of it, the thing you have to remind yourself, or at least I have to remind myself is I'm sitting here and it's just over two years into this, call it experiment, if you will. It's like, that's the thing that I, I push myself back with or like ground myself with, with it is you feel like I've done a lot of great work. I've got these chances for a reason because I've done some of the right things to get there. So you have to just like push yourself back into your place and try to kick that to the side. But yeah, it's a, it's a total thing. It happens a lot. Well, yeah. And I think when you get on those brand shoots, cause like you said, it's a different purpose and sometimes you have to make sure that product looks perfect. And there's things where you would just be like, oh, let's go out there and shoot this. And oh, we got to steam this and make sure it looks good. But then you get to control lighting and there's other things you get to a little bit more. Yeah, there's, there's just a lot that goes, I mean, you, some of the stuff that you do, you, you get it. Like, you know what goes behind it. It's just like a different mindset and vision for it. Cause you can just go shoot people playing golf and it's like, all right, great. Like, that's a great image. You caught this raw, authentic moment, but that raw, authentic moment doesn't show the polo off the way that it needs to sell. So it's like, how do you pose somebody right? Or like get that pose or that. Yeah, it's okay. Like, hey, stand there, smile at the camera, or look to the side, or look left, look right. You know, do this. It's like that's great, but there's still such a niche, special talent to getting those images that are very posed or very styled to feel like they're so authentic. Yeah, it's a tough balance for sure, especially when you're used to following along. But no matter what, it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, because yeah, you're also like you said, Matt. You're out there shooting, playing with your buddies, getting a cool shot of a photo. But when you're doing that studio type photography, you're also kind of being the director as to hey, turn your shoulders this way, find your light. We need to get this, we need to do that. Like it's something me and Jeremy have talked about where the amount of times you're actually hitting the button compared to setting it up, getting the person in the right spot, it's very different, right? It's a whole lot of prep and not a whole lot of shooting. Yeah, I don't really do studio. I mean, that's, I do product stuff, but for me, I'm very much a on the course, natural light, like that type of thing. I mean, obviously like I'll use diffusers, reflectors, stuff like that, where we're needed when you're out there for some of those brand sheets, but I'm pretty minimalist when it comes to a lot of that stuff, just because again, I don't have the classical photography education. I'm a finance guy. So everything that I know is 
self-taught or learned from somebody else. So some of that stuff I'm still learning and adding those skills and like that's some of the stuff behind the scenes that I continue to work and develop on. But for me, it's very much like minimalist. Hey, we're out there. The natural light we have is what I learned to shoot with. Like, cause yeah, that's what it is with golf. That video from the Zero Restriction and Stream song where the guy is swinging in the club with the women in the background and he's changing outfits through each part of the swing. Epic. Thanks. Yep. That was a fun one. And, and I can't take full credit for that. I mean, the, the Zero team, you know, we have a, we had a crew of us like coming up with ideas and, and putting concepts together. So there's a brain trust behind that. That's not all me, but it was fun to help bring that one to life. That's a tough edit though, too, to get that person in the same spot every time, same movement. I mean, that's, that's tough. Yeah, we used T's to make sure his feet were in the right spot, line the toes up, camera stayed in the same place the whole time. Would have been really good if the wind wouldn't have picked up for one of them, because you can see the windmill spin and then it's steady and all the rest of them, it wasn't moving. <laughs> but like, that's the one thing that got us, but it's still, uh, it's still executed. But that's also the thing that you look at, yes. where 90% of people will never notice that at all. But nope. since you were there, you were like, oh, that one little thing changed. We go through this a lot. So a cool thing that I have gotten to do now with USGA is I do a lot of their tee to greens for broadcast. So before championships now, we'll go in the year before and fly all 18 holes. And that's the stuff that ends up on broadcast for one year at home watching the golf course. So they're, hey, here's what all seven looks like at Minehurst this year. And we work with a really great team. Jeff Marsh does them a lot with me. I'm sure you guys will probably get him on here at some point. Yep. Uh, but we work with a guy by the name of Rob Cowan, who's a longtime NBC producer, produced a ton of different sports. The guy's a legend. The stories that guy can tell and the things that he has done is is insane. He's the guy that started basically aerials and golf, is my understanding of it. He was at one point hanging out of the helicopters when that's when they had to do it and directing the aerials and things would look like at that point. And now we do it with drones. So he's out there directing Marsh and I. I've done it with Omar Rawlings too. He's directing us around the course and he loves to have everything be absolutely perfect. It's funny, we did Pinehurst this year, and it is a nightmare logistically to try and get Pinehurst and have it be, air quotes, perfect, because there's public play going off two tees at most points. There's maintenance everywhere. There's dog walkers here. There's people out walking around. There's cars going by on the road. There's all types of stuff. I have to push back on it sometimes. It's like, wow, like you see those things in the corners of the frame and the little details. Most of the viewers don't see that. So it's a funny thing that you bring that up. Yeah, and that's always the case. So I'm curious, how much of the post-editing do you do on any of these things, be it the video, the drone shots, the photos? Do you handle most of it, or does it get passed off? Yeah, I probably handle, I'd say 90 to 95% of my editing at this point. That's one of the things that I'm starting to look at for next year, which is the amount that I travel and the amount that I shoot, is basically trying to save myself some time and resources in some places, especially on the video side of things. As I've started to shoot more and, and build out more of a network in the space, I've met some great guys that are extremely talented editors, like Beethoven on the keyboard, as far as being able to run through Premiere without a mouse, like kind of the stuff that I would learn to do in Excel when I was in <laughs> college for finance stuff that's what these guys are like in premiere and i've gotten fast but these guys just blow anybody out of the water in terms of speed so there's going to be some stuff next year that the video at least to the point where it's like hey i'm going to give you all this stuff i'm going to give you a vision for it and maybe a track selections music stuff like that and get it like 90 percent of the way there for me so that i can save a lot of time and effort on that front and focus on the stuff that continues to push the business forward and focus on the creative energy towards the next shoot of, you know kind of what the uh, next thing is in front of me 
Yeah, I think that's a smart plan. There are people that all they do are adjust colors on videos. When I yeah. went over at TNT, it's like there's a guy that I worked with and that's all he did. Yeah. And he would get footage in and he would go in there and do LUTs and change colors on everything. And that was his job. Yeah. It's incredible to watch them work. So many specialized guys and audio guys too, like guys that are like, I can never be one of those guys, props to those guys. I don't know how that's the thing that you spend your time focused on and doing. And it's such a skill and it, it's incredibly valuable, especially at the level of production stuff that you're around too, Jeremy, like you see it obviously firsthand, but it is, it's crazy. That's what I tell any person who is doing photography and they want to start doing video and adding it on. Don't touch the audio ever. Because you're never going to get it to the level that these people that specialize, because that's all they do and that's how they think. Always yeah. have a good audio person with you. Yeah. And I think that's a smart thing for you to stay away from that. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I'd be interested to know how it's going to go for you giving somebody a vision and the footage and seeing how it turns out. Because there's so many times your vision and you can articulate it really well, you know, how that matches up one for one. So keep keep us updated on how that works out for you. Yeah, we'll do it for sure. That'll be awesome. All right. So I think at this point, we're going to hit our, we'll call them like our bucket of questions, right? Because we got about four minutes left. You got a flight in the morning. You can, yeah. you can run it as long as you want. Ask, <laughs> you know, we're, we're chatting. So keep sending it. I'm happy to chat. Then I, I need to know, this is one that we just brought up the other day. This is one that Mike came up with. Of all your photos, which one do you want to frame in your house? Which one is special to you? Oh boy, that's such a hard question. I think the one thing to preface is for you, it could be a shot with your buddies, your brother playing golf, or it could be Pinehurst where you took an awesome photo. Any picture you've ever taken and you're like, I want that one to live forever. Mm, I mean, so that's funny. The one that I have as the background of the Zoom thing here right now, I just do that on because I downloaded Zoom like 15 minutes ago before <laughs> a bit probably longer than that because I'm I'm normally on that on Google Meet these days uh, now that I'm not in the corporate life but yeah this this one that I have in the background here I mean this comes from first trip to Bandon and this was during that COVID 2020 trip and again what we talked about it's like taking home the images is like taking home something for the pro shop for somebody else and this one takes me back to that trip because I was on furlough I was getting unemployment money like was just hanging out playing golf had nothing else to do the trip was supposed to be three days with the trip. If you extended or added anything on outside of the golfer's general package, it was half price golf. So I called Bandon up before I got out there. I was like, hey, if I extend, would you guys extend half price golf? They're like, yeah, there's like nobody out here. We'll happily extend it. We're just happy to have you. So the three-day trip, long story short, turned it into an eight-day trip. Wow. Made like 340 holes of golf or something dumb like that in a week out at Bandon. Basically, it was like two and a half rounds a day is like the pace we were running on. So my buddy was out there with me that went and we had perfect weather. It's late May. And what we would do is we'd play our 18 in the morning, have lunch, play 18 in the afternoon, either have dinner or just run it straight back. And when we would run it back, like if you're not familiar with Bandon, obviously like third round is free. So free bonus golf, sun would be setting. We'd basically skip the front nine of Bannon. We'd go straight into 10th tee. We'd play 10 through 17 and then hop off of 17 if the sun was still going down and go right back to 14 tee and play 14, 15, 16, 17, 14, 15, 16, 17 on loop until the sun was down. And occasionally we'd stop and just sit on the bench at 16. It just kind of like was a moment. What in the world, man? It's like your first time out there. It is literally golf heaven out there. We got COVID going on around us. We escaped from this whole other thing going on. 
And we've got these straight burner sunsets on repeat. And we literally had the resort to ourselves. It was like, where do you want to go play? It was open T-sheet, open everything. It's like that image has that story and that context behind it. It still is my computer background and it has hung even with everything else that I've had a chance to shoot and do. It's just that image I keep going back to. And it's because it has that context behind it for me. That's the perfect answer to that question. Because being there with your friends, everything's crazy. The fact that you had abandoned to yourself is just mm -hmm. so incredible. And yes, that bench behind 16 is a special place that everyone needs to experience for sunset. You have to just sit on that bench. You just got to sit there and just take it in. And sometimes it's even just let the groups play through you. And, yep. you know, people ask for summer, two summer, single or whatever it is coming in off that place. And it's, it's something else. That's perfect. Yeah, you crush that. You crush that. All right. Let's ask the question that everybody probably wants to hear. What's in the camera bag? You don't have to go through every single thing inside of there, but let's talk about, you know, bodies, lenses, preferred. Just dig in, tell the people what you're working with when you're out on the course. Yeah, it's funny. It's sitting behind me with them open, packed, ready to go. But I'm a Canon guy. Have been since I started shooting. That first body I got was an 80D with the kit lens. Upgraded my first mirrorless was an R6. And I still have that R6. That's kind of my third body now that I use. My two primary bodies are R5s. So the R5s, if we're going to go into a little bit of the, the tech, the the specs that, that makes me like the R5s, you've got close to 50 megapixel photo coming off of those for brand shoots, things like that. You've got all the real estate you need to work with. And then on the video side of things, up to 4K, 120, you can go up to 8K if you want to get crazy. I mean, finding a computer that can even handle that is ridiculous at this point. So it shoots great photo, great video. I love the Canon colors. The colors that come off and I think are, are some of the best. I mean, I even work with a bunch of guys that shoot Sony and they're still like, yeah, the, the Canon colors are kind of hard to beat. So I'm very run and gun. As far as it goes for video, some guys are gimbal or steady rig or have cages on it and all this different stuff. Like if you see me out at a championship and I'm doing video, I look more like a still photographer than I do a video guy. I've got some sort of artist on, usually one body with a 70 to 200 on one side. And depending on what I'm working on, it's either the 28 to 70 on the other or some sort of a 400 or telephoto on the other. But my lenses that I own, I have the 70 to 200, the 2.8, the RF lens, the Canon, and then I have the 28 to 70, the F2. But those two are pretty much my bread and butter. For most of the shoots, like that's all you're going to need. My eye kind of sees the telephoto view is what I'd say. That's my photographer eye is very much a telephoto zoom lens type of eye. The Ricoh that I got this year that I mentioned earlier, it's like a 40 millimeter equivalent a lens on that. The nice thing also is you can crop because 40, 51, I think, and then 70. So that 40 is something that's good for me to push my eye and my vision and get me away from the 70 to 200. Like I'm weird. I'll walk. If you, you go back to like some of those banded images that we were talking about, I walked band in with 70 to 200 in my hand the whole time. And at that point, that was before I had the new RF one. I had the R6 with the converter on it with a Tamron 70 to 200 on it. So that thing was a beast. Like that thing yeah. looked like a bazooka on the front of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what I carry. If I'm at the ringer and I'm carrying a body around, I've got the 70 to 200 on the R5. And like, that's what I'm carrying because that's just what I see. Mm. You're speaking my language. I'm the same way. That's clipped on my bag or I'm carrying it always. We talked about this on our first episode. It makes sense for golf courses. They're big. You've got to compress it a little bit. Yeah. Because if you're shooting too wide, you're seeing everything. Mm -hmm. And then the subject's small and just doesn't really play to your eye correctly. So I yeah. completely agree with you. 
Yeah. So that's on like the, the body and lens side. Like that's what I rock. Got too many drones. Uh, <laughs> to, to get in that side. My buddy's joke, the original drone, I was at the ringer shooting the one year and the one dude was like, Oh, I want to follow you around. He's like, I want to see Hong Force One in action. I love it. We joke whenever I'm flying, like, oh, which number is this? Is this Han Force 3, 4? It's, it's too many to count at this point. And I'm funny. For some reason, with the drones occasionally, I have this sentimental attachment to some of them. I still have the original Mavic because I had that for a while. And before, I, I, I upgraded when they got to like one of the later versions of the 2. So I had the original Mavic, still have that, had the 2. By the time I upgraded to the next one, the 2 was at the point where it wasn't worth anything to resell. So I have the 2 still. I have the 3, the first one that came with the 2 lenses. They have the telephoto that wasn't as good and then the main 24. And now I have the new Mavic Pro, the one that's got the 3 lenses on it. So I've got like 4 Mavics, 5 Mavics here just kind of hanging out. The, the You know, the other 3 serves as a backup. Like that's got a legitimate purpose because for me, if I'm going to do... A tee to green shoot, I can't have like a drone go down and then we're just out of luck for the rest of, of the shoot. So both of those will go with in that type of a scenario. Uh, and then on the FPV side of things, I've got two outdoor FPVs, two indoor FPVs, uh, and both of those are the same rig. They're a little bit more of like a custom build type of thing, order parts from a place and, and put them together. There's kits and things you can get. I mean, we could do a whole hour and a half on just FPV alone, but they're... We might. <laughs> my brother-in-law is the exact same way and he does it just for fun he just loves flying him around and like you said the little one in your house yeah when he comes in town he is always zooming it around and he just gave my son for his eighth birthday one of his old little ones so yeah it's fun to play around with for sure yeah they're fun the, the challenge with me now with like the kid is like you're going to shoot and you've got all the regular gear and now you got the fpv gear so now you need like backpack and pelican and batteries or they're not smart batteries they're i call them stupid batteries they're more like pain in the ass batteries because they've got to be in the lipo bag in case they catch fire it's a whole mess on those are you still rocking the gopro yes and it's gopro bones on the indoor stuff or there's whatever the latest gopro is on the outside ones and some of them have taken not gold wood haven't wrecked any rigs real bad i had one where we tried to push something where we were flying fpv at pebble and signals do not operate signal-wise like they do with a regular drone. Pretty much, if you get some sort of solid ground between you and the ground, you're going to lose visual signal. And once you get visual signal, you are screwed. You're toast. You're the sitting duck. You are a paperweight that is moving too fast without any sort of direction. So I've had a few where we've lost visual signal. My brother and I actually had one instance where we were on a job. And again, no crashes based off piloting and not following boat. Some signal stuff is where we've run into issues. He fired up his goggles while I had mine in the air. We were on the same channel. Didn't realize that that would be a thing that would interfere as much as it did. Cut my visual feed and I'm basically 50, 60 feet in the air with this drone moving pretty quick. And now it's falling. It's what it is. And I imagine no. at like a US Open, because there's so many radio signals going around for television and everything else, that that could become an issue too. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they're super tight on RF stuff for audio guys and things like that. The crazy part is that, like US Open, like some of the security stuff. I'm like, I, I don't want to go too deep into it because I'm probably not even supposed to talk about some of it. But they know if their drone's on site and a drone powers up, they know it's there. Yeah. So getting clearance and stuff and working, that's again the benefit of being there with the USGA is we're radioing in, drone turning on, drone going up. As soon as drone's down, all right, drone's off. We're, we're out of the air. So yeah, it works. Like the FPV stuff, I guess some of it plays on a little different channel wise. You don't have to worry about as much of that RF stuff with the audio guys. And that's at least a, a benefit on that front. 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, every major sporting event now, no matter what it is, even just a normal baseball game, they know if something's going up. Yeah. And they're locking they're, it down. They're on top of it. So wait, Matt, you kind of hinted towards it. How how do you carry all of this stuff? You said you have a pelican, you have a backpack. Good question. That's a, a never-ending struggle. I've got the Peak Design, the largest backpack that they make. It's like the 45 liter. And that one it was like fully expanded. I have the cubes in it. The cameras and lenses typically go in that. If I'm going on a shoot that doesn't need a PV, I'm trying to make it work in a backpack. The real pain then is that backpack's like 40 to 45 pounds. Yeah. So it's just super heavy. It works nice when you got a carry-on suitcase, but if you're going for a long trip, you're just lugging this huge backpack through the airport, which is a pain. But if I've got the FPV stuff with, or if like I'm going to a major shoot, you got all the gear with, it's Pelican case and then the backpack. And both of those are packed to the brim to be able to get all the stuff in there. I never check any gear. The only stuff that gets checked is I've got like a you know, Peak Design travel tripod or like some of my harness stuff or like photo belt stuff. Like that'll go in the suitcase and be a one-sided suitcase, but none of the gear itself gets checked. Mm. Always a good roll. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to play that game. No. I, I, I can tell you a story of my old boss at one time had a Pelican case with some lenses in, and he was at baggage claim, and suddenly one of his lenses comes rolling down <gasps> at baggage claim. Just straight up the lens rolled down like it was a bag. Nice. And that it opened up when they were loading it on. Yeah, that's why I always lock it, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that kind of, I think, went around a lot of the gear. I mean, you could go into probably too many GoPros to count. Got, like, the DJI mic system. I mean, that's what I'm running for. Again, like, every running gun. If it's in the way, like... I own a gimbal. I think it's maybe gone out like three times in the last two years. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's running. If it's in the way, it typically doesn't work for me. Gimbals are tough. We got one and trying to get it and working it. I mean, that's an art in itself doing something like that. Getting them balanced is, yeah, takes more time than I wanted ever to. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, when you're doing running gun, you can't suddenly be like, oh, hold on a second. Let me go load this thing up. And there's just more things to carry or more yeah. bodies. I don't know how people run around golf tournaments in the game or like full sticks is crazy. I joke with one of the guys that's on our USGA team, Brandon. Uh, his last name is, it's hard to pronounce because I ski, Brandon ski basically. And he does a lot of tour work and they drive carts around on tour. They typically have somebody to drive them, but when we're out at USGA or PGA or majors or stuff like that, you're off foot. You're not taking a cart around the major, just too many people. And the first time we went out together, when he was at US Open, it was the first day out running around. He had the full camera rig on the sticks. And I was like, you're going to carry that around the hallway. And we got about like 500 yards and he was like, I'm going back. I'll see you in a bit. <laughs> you got a little new set. Yep, you're gonna change your your ways a little bit with this one. <laughs> he, he will use gimbal stuff out there, and you get some really cool stuff with it. It's just such a pain. Yeah. All right. So we call this Matt our burst shutter. I didn't let you know ahead of time any of the uh, questions, so it's gonna be rapid fire, and you just tell me how you want to go. So we'll start right away. Morning or twilight? Ooh, I think it's twilight because morning sometimes you get to do, and it gets a little harsh. Yeah. Walking or riding? Walking. I walk probably 98% of my golf. Zoom or prime lenses? Zoom. I mean, that. I got to go with that, obviously, based off what I talked with. Talked yeah. Swing photo or landscape photos? That's a tough one. I mean, if it's at a pro event, I love having a subject in the environment. That's where I'm going to go. Swing photo, if I'm out with random people or random place, I'm probably going landscape or some sort of environment photo because most people's swings don't really work all that great <laughs> all right i threw this one as a little joke vertical or horizontal photos 
the one where Abelbar is uh, is cringing. No, I mean, it's funny with the social stuff these days. I will say for the longest time, I found myself shooting primarily vertical stuff. And I get to spend some time around some really good still photographers, some guys like your Getty sports style, still imagery type things, some legends too, uh, with the team that works with USGA. And it's like, you can always crop, especially when you're shooting at 50 megapixels. So there's certain situations where I'm trying to get a certain thing accomplished in a vertical frame and I'm going to shoot a vertical because that's the lens I have and I need to shoot a vertical to fit everything. But I'm starting to shoot more landscape images, again, just because they've got the longevity, they've got the staying power, and then you have all the frame to work with. So it's that's a never-ending battle. Omar's very happy right now. <laughs> I, look, I'm the same way. I've always been a landscape person, but more and more, I'm shooting it for like a friend to have or whatever. Yeah. I know what they're going to use it for. Yeah. So, oh, here's your vertical, then mm -hmm. be done with it. Yep. It's going to go on a phone background or on an Instagram post. Yeah. So we'll let the listeners on the inside joke there. So like Matt was saying, for the longest time, he's a vertical shooter. And I, I'm always shooting vertical. And we have a mutual friend, Omar Rawlings, who does the photography for the Fires Club, among multiple other things. He's an incredibly gifted photographer and somebody that we'll have on the podcast. And it grinds his gears seeing that camera go that way. We were in Ireland and we FaceTimed Matt. He's like, Matt, Matt, tell this guy, he keeps shooting vertical. Make him stop. <laughs> Well, especially if you do it with video with them, then it really gets... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Never do it with video. People will murder you if you do that. Like, that is a no-go. That's only application. You got 4K coming out of your camera, too. You don't really need your turn. Right. All right. Last question. What is your tip for aspiring shooters? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, you got to kind of figure out your style, figure out your niche, figure out what you're good at. And again... Here I am talking about adding different tools to the toolkit and things like that. And, and I kind of take an approach having a lot of these different skills. But for me at the start, it's figure out what your eye is and figure out what makes you different. I actually just had to think about this for USGA because they were doing a thing they wanted to highlight some of the photographers in their off journal and they asked us to submit some of our favorite images from the year and give tips for the article. And I think the thing that I prescribe to or subscribe to when I'm going to shoot some of these major events is if I see the conglomerate of photographers standing in one spot, I'm typically headed the other direction. Or if I'm going to a place that a million people have taken the same photo of this point of interest or whole of interest, I'm trying to figure out a way to show it that people haven't seen before. And I think that's something that I've been able to do pretty well with because I have people a lot of times look at images and be like, where did you take that from? Or how did you you get that angle or where are you standing for this? So that's something that I take some pride in is trying to do stuff that's a little different than some of the other people. Obviously there's certain points where everybody's standing in a spot because like that's the spot you need to be in. So you got to know the difference between those times. But for me, if everybody's gone one way, I typically try to go the other way and bring some sort of a different look or feel or angle to it. And if you do that, you're going to start to go about your own style. So that's something I think that I would point to if I was going to give you one tip is just try to try to go not against the grain, but try and find something that makes your images different from everybody else. I yeah. think that's a huge thing that people need to do, especially sporting events. You have a lot of photographers there. You have a lot of people around. You'll see them all in the same spot. Why are they there? Are they forced to be there? But you can find something else that's not involved in that whatsoever. And I think that that is a really good way to look at it. Yeah. Let's just try and create an image that's not being created by 50 other people that are standing there. Again, show it different. Put your own spin on it. Yeah. Being original in this world where it's very easy to be a copycat of, of what other people are doing. 
and it's saturated at this point. There's a lot of people that are out there shooting. Everybody can be a quote unquote photographer these days. If you get an Instagram and a camera, like you can go and do it. And that's something that can make it difficult. But also at the same time, when I look at images on Instagram, or if I dive into stuff, if I find stuff that I like or that I save or that I bookmark, I'll spend a lot of time with it and be like, why do I like this? Like I'll look at composition or I'll look at stuff. You know, there's some different people that I love their style. Like Hafer was somebody at the beginning of like when I was starting, you know, Christian Hafer was somebody that inspired me that I really liked his style and like the way that he shoots. And I'd look at his images or other people's images that are great in the space and be like, all right, I like this image. Why do I like this image? What is it in the composition or the colors or whatever it is? And start to internalize some of that stuff. And again, for me, it's trying to look at what is the tool that he's using in this image and try and take that tool and be able to use it in my own, you know, compositions in some different way. That's awesome. That's, that's really, really good. I think of all the conversation and questions that we asked throughout this all, it's going to be awesome to hear everybody's different responses to that. Because I think it's really going to help build people's confidence in just wanting to try it. Get out there, shoot with your phone, shoot with your R5, whatever it is, right? But that being original is, that's a, a great one. I mean, you're not going to get better if you don't go shoot. So that's the other thing. Go shoot. <laughs> you got to you gotta start somewhere. So you got to yep. fire away. I tell awesome. people the best camera is the one that you will use and is near you and you can get too easily. Like you talk about the point and shoot that you go out with. It's easy to use. You're not going to worry about carrying too many lenses and things. It's like, all right, mm -hmm. I'm going to shoot it and go. Yep. Takes the friction away. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Jeremy, do you have anything else for Matt before we uh, close shop here? No, that was spectacular, Matt. Yeah, Matt, thank you. That was awesome. It's, it's incredible first cast. You truly are setting the bar very, very high. And we appreciate your flexibility with time. And yeah, we're just, we're thankful, man. Thank you. No, I mean, I appreciate it, guys. It's cool to have people take interest in, in what you're doing and what you got going on. So thanks for taking the time with me. And thanks for having me be the uh, first guest. I'm excited to sit and listen to some of the other very talented people that you're going to bring on through here. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. And if you have any recommendations of anyone, let us know. We have a list of about 50 people right now. Um, we're going to kind of try and sift through and we're trying to do everybody from the on-course person and Jeremy has great connections and the studio world or, or anything else and just talk about it as a whole, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole list of people. So I'm sure there's some overlap there, but I can definitely just make your way. Awesome. Yeah. Please do. Well, buddy, safe travels. We can't wait to see whatever it is you're going to do, wherever you're going to be at. And if you need a fourth in Montana, I will... Yeah happily meet you there. Jeremy's got all the free time in the world. So if you need two more people, well, we'll happily. I'm wide open. September is my month to do whatever I want. Good to know. Keep me posted. But yeah, fun stretch coming up for sure. I'm excited. Awesome. Right. Well, we are excited to see what happens out of it. So yeah, keep on the lookout for Matt. Matt, plug yourself. Plug your Instagram, your YouTube, your website. Do it all. Let them know where they can find you. Yeah, you got it. At Matt Hahn Photo. M-A-T-T-H-A-H-N Photo. Pretty simple uh, on that front. And that's the same on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is pretty much where I share most of my stuff. Got a website on matt.com. Try to keep that updated with work as much as I can. That's got some portfolio stuff, some video stuff, some of the FPV projects and things like that. That's due for an update as well, I think, on some of the FPV side from some of the stuff this year. But that's kind of the, the spots for me. So yeah, go, uh, go ahead and check it out. But Instagram is the best place to find me. Yeah, awesome. All right, buddy. Thank you. And we will be in touch. All right, guys. Appreciate it.